Welcome to the Kettle Call Podcast. Today we are again with Dr. Warren Rushi from South Dakota State University, and we are going to make a research call with him to talk about some of the research that he's doing uh, in South Dakota State. And he has talked about his career in our past episode, really nice talk. If you haven't listened to that, make sure to listen. He has a very, very nice story. So before we go and call Warren, let me go ahead and call Brooke. Hello, Brooke. Hi, Pedro. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Great. Is it a good time for a call? It's always a great time for a cattle call. Great, great. So how are you, Warren? We're doing well, Pedro. Thank you. Great, great. How is it's summer in South Dakota? You know, we're getting into, we're, we're rolling into fall and I could tell people I, October is one of my favorite times of year. You know, we, we get rid of some of the heat, but it's still, you know, the, the days are still warm enough. We don't necessarily need a coat. Uh, the nights cool down. It's, you know, I sometimes think we get just a few weeks of really nice weather, but, um, we know winter's coming, but uh, we're enjoying those last, you know, we're enjoying the fall days because snow will be here before we know it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree. So that's that's very nice. I think uh, you, you've mentioned uh, in, in some of our conversations that you guys had a, a let's say a dry summer and and some challenge in in producing feed. And I think that's what Brooke's going to to be asking you today in some challenge and some probably new opportunities coming up in in producing feed to to carry in the feedlot. So, Brooke, what is what is the question that we have to to Warren today? So, um, this week, uh, last month, actually, we talked to Dr. Zach Smith, and he kind of alluded to some of the work that he and Warren have been doing, uh, specifically with rye. So, um, it's exciting to have this conversation now to kind of follow up on that. So. Um, we were just wondering if you could just start by telling us about the project and how you guys came up with it. What what was so, what was important that led up to this project? Well, sure, Brooke. Um, you know, we were approached by KWS Cereals uh, that if we were if we had any interest in evaluating the use of hybrid rye in uh, in finishing cattle diets, and and frankly, when I you know I first saw that email from uh, Dr. Stokes who, or now Dr. Bratton, I, I honestly was like, I don't know. We're in you know, we're in South Dakota, we grow corn, you know, why would we ever want to mess with, why would we ever want to think about feeding rye? And, so, but I, you know, just out of, you know, kind of following through, I thought, well, I'll, you know, we'll touch, you know, we'll give her a call and see what, uh, see what the story is. And, and she started explaining to me some of the differences in the technology that's been developed in Europe. And, and the fact that this hybrid rye has about anywhere from 50 to hundred percent, the yield potential of the, the older genetics that uh, my family was growing in the seventies and eighties. Uh, and, it, and, and the way and the value it has uh, fitting into some crop rotations, so our typical crop rotation here in uh, most in Eastern South Dakota anyway, and the rest of the upper Midwest, West is corn and soybeans, uh, and it works fairly well. I mean, it's certainly we're we're well suited for it. We know how to grow those crops, but from an agronomic standpoint, uh, leaves some gaps. Uh, we we have some issues with pest it, pest incorporating some other crop helps us break up some pest cycles. Um, rye is a lower input crop and really does some nice things from a corn yield response uh, by including that. So you know, the more I was digging into it, the more I thought that uh, yeah, this is a project worth taking a look at. Uh, but even at that point, I really thought is yeah. 
yeah, this will be an interesting experiment. It'll be a, a nice chapter in my dissertation, but I really wasn't sure uh, if anyone was actually going to use it. You know, is this going to be one that's just going to get you know done, put on a shelf and never looked at again? And I started changing my mind when a, a person I knew from uh, well, from high school stopped me at a farm exposition that wanted to know what I knew about feeding rye. This was before we'd even started the project. And so I, you know, at that point, I was starting to think, you know, this project might have some legs. So uh, we, um, you know, it, it, we ended up, uh, we, we started this project uh, about two years ago right now, fall of 2019. And uh, with a group of yearling steers that we put on feed at the Southeast Research Farm. And, uh, you know, from there, I guess, I suppose, you know, the next question is going to be actually, well, what did we do? And uh, what did we find out? Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah, we'd love to hear just about the project, what you guys did and and what were those results? Sure. So what we ended up doing is we had 240 head of mostly Angus or primarily Angus cross steers that came in weighing about 920 pounds, uh, uh, came off from one consigner at a central South Dakota sale barn. That's one of the nice things we get to do here is we can get by uh, single source groups of cattle uh, in some volume. So from a research standpoint, it makes things simpler. Uh, we set that uh, set the experiment up with four different treatments. Our control was our kind of our standard finishing diet that was 60% corn, 16% silage, 20, 20% modified distillers, and then uh, 4% of a liquid supplement that had the, you know, the remnants and trace minerals and so forth. From there, we took the 60% corn and replaced a third, two thirds, or all of that with the hybrid rye. Uh, KWS was uh, gracious enough to supply us the, the the feed, uh, the rye that we used for the experiment, it came from one farm in Minnesota, so we could reduce some of that variation. Uh, we did test it for ergot. Uh, that's one of the concerns when we're feeding. Uh, can be a concern with any small grain, but especially with rye. And uh, the, the test came back that it was within tolerances. Uh, the feed grain itself was a little under 400 parts per billion, so uh, that wasn't going to be an issue. We started incorporating the rye. Sorry, what, what, what did you test? I missed that. Uh, I'm sorry, ergot, ergot alkaloids in particular. It's a, uh, you know, if for a lot of your listeners might be familiar with fescue toxicity, it's mm -hmm. the same fungal family. It um, uh, tends to infect the head at, you know, at around the time of flowering. It can be a real challenge with, with rye. And that was one of the things that the, you know, the, the older literature, um, you know, talked about, uh, But one of the reasons we thought and KWS thought it was worth taking another look at is, number one, these hybrids uh, have been, they've had the, some traits you know, through conventional breeding, uh, have traits that uh, help re increase the resistance to ergot, ergot infestation, number one. And number two, the most You know, from a lit review standpoint, I think the most recent rye paper I could find was from about 1981. You know, just no one has done much work on that. So, uh, or there, there was some in Europe, but it you know wasn't you know North American kind of production systems, not North American types of cattle. So we thought there maybe some there was some value in taking another look at the feed stuff in in modern diets with corn co product you know, distillers distillers grain uh, in modern cattle production genetics and systems. So you know, that, that was kind of where we, our starting point on the experimental design. We also included the rye during the step-up phase because we thought it was important to uh, examine what, if any thought, you know, effect that might have on 
uh, you know, on, as cattle adapted to feed. Honestly, my biggest concern was, are these cattle going to eat it? Uh, <laughs> the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, we just spent about $300,000 of the university's money to feed them a feedstuff that no one is fooled with for almost 40 years. And are they going to eat it? And, you know, we just created a, you know, a gigantic mess of a bunch of cattle that won't eat, won't grade, won't, won't gain, won't grow. Um, we got to our first weigh day right after the whole step up and to first off, they ate the feed, thankfully. And on our first weigh day, uh, the high rye cattle actually gained more weight than the controls, which was, yeah, we had the same, you know, we're watching this on zoom. I had the same reaction Pedro just did with the eyebrows went up and like, well, that was unexpected uh, <laughs> because the book value had it at about, uh, you know, I think like 85% the feed value of a corn on a net energy basis. So uh, from then it started, you know, that's what it started getting really interesting. And the feed intakes tracked really closely all the way up until about day 50 of the experiment or about 20 days after they got on full feed. And from then the, the, the more rye we included, they plateaued at a reduced level and plateaued sooner. Uh, so we think, you know, so that was one of the first things we saw, at least uh, based on our daily, weekly and daily feed records, was there was an effect on dry matter intake. Uh, when we, these cattle were on feed for about 120 days, uh, when we got out to harvest and, uh, you know, got all the carcass data and performance results, uh, we saw a response to, uh, we saw a negative effect a linear effect on including rye, where the more rye we included, uh, they the didn't, they gained less and were less efficient, really how the book said they would. What was interesting, though, was that one-third treatment. When we only put in a you know, 20% of the diet or a third of the grain, uh, the performance measures were essentially identical. And so we ended up, when we calculated, we got a small positive associated effect by, uh, uh, by feeding the rye, uh, which we thought was really, really exciting from the standpoint of, you know, I think from a science standpoint, associated effects are cool because it's kind of like I get something for nothing. Uh, and so we looked at that and go, wow, that's essentially, it says if we feed just a little bit, uh, we're getting a, the equivalent performance to what the corn was doing. And so that was... Um, you know, that kind of, and then there were no negative effects on, uh, on any kind of carcass measures as cattle graded well, uh, didn't change, you know, real significant changes as far as yield grades, uh, didn't do anything to liver abscesses, which, you know, we, you know, that's kind of always the hope now is like we've stumbled upon something that cures that problem. Uh, we didn't do it, but we didn't make it worse either. So then we started looking at, you know, and, and so then this project was what, um, we presented it at the, I think it was presented at the National Animal Science Meetings and then also at the Plains Nutrition Council, where I was fortunate enough to, this was my, the poster that, uh, that won first place for me in that contest. So, uh, you know, and then from there, we, you know, we wrote it up, published it. It's been published in the Translational Animals, Journal Animal Science. The, the other questions that we, it was left with is, well, what, what if anything, could we do uh, to get around some of that intake response differences? And, and you know, we bounced around a couple different ideas. Uh, you know, after talking with Dr. Bratton, who is our contact within KWS, we, we settled on a couple different possibilities. 
The first was, you know, maybe even at low levels, maybe there was enough ergot alkaloids to de depress feed intake and performance, or maybe it was a, uh, you know, starch fermentability aspect. Uh, even though the rise lower in starch and corn, it's extremely rapidly fermentable. It, it acts a lot like barley and wheat from that standpoint. And so to, and I should have, I should have mentioned earlier, we did process the rye. We cracked it. Uh, we, um, we, we looked at some of the work that Dr. Penner's group has done in Saskatchewan on wheat, and uh, they found that about 78% processing index worked. So that's what we picked. Um, and so we wondered if, well, what would happen if we fed it whole? So we had a small group of yearling heifers from a, for another project a little later. We had a little bit of leftover rye. So we tried uh, comparing just a, you know, our conventional diet or one that was 100% rye with whole rye. And that was a project one of our master's graduates uh, was the first author on. And um, the long and the short of that one is when we fed whole rye, they ate more. So we solved the intake issue, but they also gained less. Uh, so eat more, gain less, poor feed efficiency. And so we end up losing, it was a net loss from a, uh, from a feeding value standpoint, which kind of highlighted the issue that processing is pretty important. Right, yeah. It's it's fun that you're you were talking and I was taking the notes and I, I one of the notes that I was going to ask is about the processing method uh, and and how much was that important to the first one and you you guys kind of answered that in your second experiment plus what, was it hard to process the rye is it, is it a hard yes. method <laughs> how, how yeah, did you guys process and how how and are you recommending now well. Um, you know, and, and it is hard and I'll talk about some of the challenges and that leads us up into uh, our next study in this that I think we're going to kick off next spring. Um, so when we got, got the ride delivered, the, you know, the research technician and I down, down at Beersford decided we're going to try to figure out how to, uh, how to run this through the roller mill they have to crack corn. And it went right through just like water. It was absolutely completely untouched. Uh, Thankfully, the operations manager, you know, as we talked about on last week, South Dakota is a small place. Well, luckily enough, he knew a guy, knew someone who has their business was making roller mills. And this person had made, they had built a small roller mill so his wife could make chicken feed. And so he loaned it to us and that worked. Do, do we get, you know, had the, I, I'd have to look up the specs in terms of corrugation and all those things, but it would crack the rye uh, and, and did so pretty, pretty well. The challenge then what we realized and it's being, you know, and I'm getting the same feedback from producers that are trying this because uh, we've got some folks that are doing a little bit of rye feeding, which you know is good to hear. It's nice to hear that your work gets actually used a little bit, but they're running into the same challenge as we are is that their roller mill can't, simply won't do it. And so we're left with this spot of, you know, this product, this crop's going to be an opportunity feed is most people are going to hope that it's worth more to someone else and we'll sell it into the bakery or distillery market and buy corn if we need to, but let's cash out a higher value crop uh, and feed rye if we don't have a choice. Well, it, it's hard to justify, uh, you know, putting new rolls in or buying a new roller mill just for something you may not be doing all that often. So our next idea, the next experiment we're going to try with this feed is we're going to go back to that one-third replacement that was the, the, the more ideal, the more optimal inclusion rate. Uh, and we're going to try it feeding rolled just like we did the last time. 
Then we're also going to feed it whole, and then we're going to run it through a hammer mill, which you know anybody who knows a lot about feeding small grain probably cringes when they hear that. Uh, and we do too, just a little bit because we know, you know, that goes against the recommendation on things like barley and wheat uh, because it, you know, particle size and something rapidly fermentable. Are we, how much are we increasing our, our acidosis risk? Our hypothesis is, is that, at that low enough inclusion level that we're not going to create enough of a starch overload to uh, you know, really detri be detrimental from a rumen health and acidosis standpoint, but get a little bit better, better utilization than what we get feeding at whole. Uh, so what we really want to do is we want to compare that to what we already have done and see if that becomes a more a more accessible processing method, because there are, you know, there's a lot of the, you know, the, grinder mixers out there and small hammer mills that, uh, you know, would be fairly, wouldn't be all that difficult to uh, put back into surface or bring back out to, uh, to process this, or for that matter, tum grinders that, you know, we're using all the time to process hay, uh, that it may be an option to process this, uh, you know, more easily than, uh, you know, getting a different roller mill. Our other option, our other reason where the other treatment is well what happens if at a small level if we feed it whole um you know we would expect that there would be some performance losses but are they small enough that we can tolerate those that in cases where you know this feed stuff is enough cheaper uh, can we you know still even though you know maybe gave up some efficiencies can we lower our costs enough that's worthwhile exploring so that's our next step in all this and uh Again, we are. I think our plans right now are probably to start that in March of 2022, and then uh, by you know those cattle would go to harvest in August, and uh, someone will be maybe talking about that at uh, either Midwest meetings or uh, or uh, Plains Nutrition Council in 2023. Great, that that's really good. So just to clarify, you're replacing dry rolled corn in those diets. Yes. Okay, and that, that makes sense. What, one of the things that while you were talking about your first study that I, I don't know if I understood that wrong and, and I just a question that came to my mind. You mentioned that the first 56 days you actually had greater intake for the rye diets? We had the same intake. Same intake. Same you, intake. And some of that's an artifact of, you know, we were, you know, we were following a slick bunk strategy. So, you know, we were we were kind of controlling that and it's only you know as we got out to about 50 days or so that we started having more refusals and uh you know inability to rate to to bump cattle up beyond that uh one other thing you know this is pure anecdote but because uh, i haven't uh, gone through the work of of actually analyzing it but you know one thing the technician and i noticed that I came down to look at the cattle. Um, should tell you the Southeast farm is about 90 miles from campus. So we're not there all the time. So we're really lying on a really skilled technician to do the day-to-day -day work. But I came down there in the middle of the afternoon and I noticed the, you know, the cattle on the pens on the higher right treatment uh, still had feed left at three o'clock where the corn controls were either slick or close to it. And so we uh, set up some game cameras to try to just capture during the course of a day, rotated around the yard, uh, the different treatments. And I, I, I got, there's one of the people on our, on our staff. I want to, he and I need to visit about seeing, we can't figure out a way to analyze those, but it's pretty clear from just a, 
you know, country boy logic that as we added more rye to the diet, we changed feeding behavior. Uh, they took longer to, uh, to consume their diet. Uh, by the end of the study, I mean, those, those steers on the high rye treatment were still cleaning up yesterday's feed when Scott had started feeding the corn control diet. So, you know, it, it so there's something going on from either a, uh, whether it's a, you know, a taste and an aversion, or if it's got something to do with starch and, you know, some kind of negative feedback that's, uh, you know, affecting feed intake, but we, we did, there were some differences. I just can't give you the, all of the stats to say I can prove it um, you know, numerically, but just looking at it, it things changed. Pretty, pretty cool, but that could be a positive effect in a, in adaptation phase. And, and that's what's coming like, can, do you think that you could face feeding the rye instead of doing lower inclusion, just feeding adaptation, a little post-adaptation, then switch to a, a whole, I mean, whole, a, a diet with only corn? Yeah, that might be study number four because I've thought okay. the same thing. And if we get the processing deal where I know where that, you know, where we got some better idea where what we can do with that, that might be something we look at is, you know, because I, I'm thinking too of like, you know, maybe some of these NH or all natural programs where we're not using ionophores, you know, could could 20% rye be somewhat of an intake modifier to um to do some things for, you know, as far as balancing feed intake. Now that said, it's also rapidly fermentable and there's some, some of the data out of Poland and other places that uh, when they've measured ruminal pH that, uh, you know, having rise causes, uh, you know, a lower pH. You know, so maybe there's a little bit of a trade-off there and maybe we have to, but I don't, also don't know what, you know, I can't recall what proportion of the diet that was. So, um, and that is an area that Dr. Smith and I don't do a lot of work in is with cannulated cattle. So we might need to find a partner on that part of it. But yeah, that is one of the things I've looked at is could we do, could we phase feed it, you know, and, and you know, feed more rye early, use that product up and then, you know, then adapt those cattle over to corn uh, and capitalize on that ability to, um, to get greater dry matter intakes than greater efficiencies is yeah, we're, we're thinking on the same lines, Pedro. I, I thought of that also. I think that's could be worth exploring. That's good. That's pretty, pretty good. Pretty good explanation. Thank you. Thank you, Warren. Yeah. Thank you. So I think you answered all of our questions. Um, pretty <laughs> thorough. Too much. <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> he was answering the questions before we asked, right? Brooke? Yeah. Exactly. I was listening and I was like, great. He got the next one. He got the next one. So you did uh, that. Those were great answers. So thank you. I, I really look forward to the work you guys um, put out and reading that once they're out and published. Yeah, it's uh, I think it's in. Um, gosh, did it go in like the last September, I think, in translational animal science? I, I remember seeing, seeing your your paper uh, and I will, I will uh, make sure to include the other one as well in the description, the description of the episode. And, and the second one, feeding the the whole rye, that was published in Animals. Uh, uh -huh. So yeah, Ellie Buckhouse is the lead author on that. So um, 
that's one of the things Zach has kind of created is a culture of, uh, you know, we're going to get, get the work done. Let's get things written and get them published quickly. And so uh, it's nice to be able to talk about that and, you know, not be able to say, well, you know, we've, we'll get that published eventually, but you know, <laughs> here it's in maybe some beef report that's hard to find, you know, here we've got it out in the journals for people to use. And, uh, you know, and, and we're kind of excited about that, that some of these next steps might be great. Great. That, that was awesome. Uh, so I think that that's all. Do you have any questions, Bruce? Nope. No extra questions from me. Okay. Any final comments? Uh, you know, I should notice too that, you know, and there's some, a couple other places that are looking at this. I, I know Dr. Erickson's group at Nebraska has done some work with steam flaking. I haven't seen any results. Um, I, I think they're, you know, I, I know they, you know, their first run, they made some really low density, beautiful flakes, but they had some problems with you know, feeding high levels of it with uh, acidosis. So I think uh, with this feed stuff that handling starch fermentability is going to be an issue. The other place that uh, you know, Dr. Penner's group in Saskatchewan, I think they are doing a, you know, a full system analysis where they planted that and then they're going to be feeding it through cattle. I think that's going to be some really cool data when they get that done. And um, because what we're seeing in our region is uh, you know, looking at it from a system standpoint, you know, this is a, it's a low input crop. It breaks up some weed cycles that are pretty important. Uh, and, and so I think that's going to be its niche. We're also trying to, and we'll see, We'll know more in a couple of weeks if we can pull this off, but I think we're going to partner with uh, uh, some of our counterparts in North Dakota State on a, on a growing study uh, because that's a, the other part of this we haven't looked at is can we, can we feed this to, you know, growing diets where we're feeding, you know, 40, 50% roughage and use uh, the rye as a sole cereal grain. Uh, that might be a, a niche that, um, you know, at those kind of inclusion levels that might not be some of the acidosis things might not be as much of a problem. Plus, if that's the only grain we're feeding, it might make the, you know, the rolling easier to accomplish. That's, that's good. Uh, uh, this year with high corn prices, we've seen some of the yards down here in the valley replacing corn by wheat. And I was just thinking if that could be a, another option. I hope, I hope Becca is listening to us and I've talked to her a little bit that we could potentially do a project here in the future uh, because I think that would be a good we, we believe or not I, and that's before I got here I didn't know that there were many wheat being grown here in the in the desert but there are a lot of wheat that's it's grown here so that could be another alternative to that well and I think too you look at you know from a you know, the bigger picture, I mean, there's so many places where water supply is going to be an issue. You know, I know that's a case in, uh, you know, place parts of the Ogallala Aquifer. Um, you know, I, I mentioned, we talked earlier about, you know, South Dakota is under a drought right now. And there are some places in the state where, you know, they've planted this hybrid rye and harvested 50, 60 bushels an acre, which doesn't sound that all that impressive. And it's really not until you look at the corn across the road that uh, only made about, um, you know, they got two and a half foot tall and never set an ear, you know, so in those situations, the fact that we could produce that kind of grain yield on very little moisture uh, gives us some idea of, you know, from a, 
from a resiliency standpoint, uh, this this crop has some things to offer. Uh, it's it's tough. You can't hardly kill rye with a bullet, and so from that standpoint, it's pretty easy to grow and fits into a lot of different niches. and And so people are really gravitating towards it. Again, I I didn't think this this idea had any legs at all, and I've been proven wrong. You know, there's been mm-hmm. some people really taking a look. That that's and that's that goes back to one of the things that we talked in our last call about your career that our job as an extension researchers is providing tools to the toolbox to the producers, right? And then they will take the decisions. And I think what you are doing with this, right, is an extra tool in the toolbox that they can decide if they're going to use or not. You are here to provide the data, and I think the data is here. And I also tell people sometimes we make mistakes so you don't have to. So, <laughs> you, know, when you, you know, feed some yearling heifers, uh, 60% unprocessed rye, you, you get to see all your rye back. It comes back out in the manure. Uh, so we learned. So now they don't have to try that. <laughs> that that's a great point. That's really good. So that's that's great, Warren. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you again for uh, participating in another call. I hope our, our listeners uh, enjoyed the call as much as Brooke and I did. And uh, if you have any any final comments, any final thoughts, so, so sounds good. Uh, thank you again. Uh, we are going to leave all of the information about your studies, about the, how people can contact you if they have any further questions in the description of this episode. Everything's going to be in our newsletter as well. So thank you once again. Uh, we appreciate that. And don't forget, it's always a good time for a cattle call. Thank you. A cowboy is singing this lonesome cattle call.